I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, I'll be discussing the family drama meets sci-fi adventure movie Kin, a retelling of the Mossad plan to capture Adolf Eichmann and put him on trial, Operation Finale, plus I finally get a chance to see John Cho save his daughter in Searching, plus a quick Netflix and chat on the HBO adaptation of Fahrenheit 451. Let's get started. He's going to figure it out eventually. I hope you're ready for that. They're coming, man. Go! I can't believe this whole time you haven't told me this. Go, go! Get away from our brother. Maybe keep that thing on the first mode, yeah? One thing nice about reviewing movies from week to week is that you'll start to kind of see the developings of brand new talent. Uh, In fact, as I was getting ready for the discussion portion of this week's podcast, I got a chance to see who you know find out who all is making their own debuts from tv from short film to finally getting their chance to debut on the big screen and that's the case we have here uh jonathan and josh baker are two brothers not much they don't have a wikipedia page so i don't know too much about them but they've mainly done short films and in fact this film is based on their short film bagman and that one was more about just a kid going from New York City up to upstate New York. And the whole conceit was he had a mysterious bag and it was about finding out what was in it. And this is kind of taking that and extrapolating on it. Don't have Their IMDb pages aren't filled out. So I literally know nothing about the Baker brothers. This is their first feature film. And I was excited to see how it turned out because I like seeing what people do with low-budget sci-fi. I mean, Upgrade is still one of my favorite movies of the year. So what we got was, um, I mean, a decent ca- and also what we had was a decent cast and the telling of a, of a family drama mainly it, that took on more sci-fi elements with the addition of this alien gun that the main character, Miles Truitt, finds. And this is his feature film debut as well. I mean... He's done. He did the BET miniseries of New Edition, and he was on episodes of Black Lightning. But this is his feature film debut, and he does all right carrying. For, you know, he he's able to carry the film for the most part. Uh, he's a bit shaky, but I'm guessing that comes. More, you know, he'll get better with time. He does all right for the most part, though. And then of course you've got Jack Rayner as his brother who just got out of prison. Dennis Quaid as as his adoptive father who's trying to instill like you know, hard lessons into him. And then along the way, they meet they meet Zoe Kravitz, who plays uh, a stripper in a strip club that does not strip. So I guess exotic dancer, maybe? I don't know. PG-13, you sh- if you can't do R rating, you probably shouldn't do a strip club scene. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, you got James Franco as the main villain, who Jack Rayner owes money to and who wants to collect on that debt and who kind of drives the main plot of the movie. Plus, you got a little um, guest appearance by uh, one of my uh, fellow uh, Mountain Union alumni, 
Carrie Coon, who plays an FBI agent that's introduced later on in the film. Sadly, they underutilize their Carrie Coon, which is very sad because she is amazing. She needs more stuff. She's she's the best. Uh, at any rate, the movie is, for the most part, pretty good. Uh, like I said, it starts as a family drama, and it does handle the drama element pretty well. Uh, Dennis Quaid, Dennis Quaid is basically replaying his character from, uh, if I could, I could only imagine, only he was actually more violent in that movie, and he was much more fun to watch here. He's just the stern, older, you know, blue-collar dad who's just trying to do the right thing, and he's good for, you know, for a while, for all the while he's in the movie, and then as the thing, and then eventually it turned, from the first act to the second act, it turns into a road movie, because, um... Jack Rayner is trying to protect his adoptive brother and get out of town so that they can say, you know, so that they don't have to deal with James Franco's character. And that's where they run into Zoe Kravitz because uh, he takes his brother to a strip club. Like it, I mean, like you do. What, what, what are you not going to go to the strip club? Uh, especially when they, you know, come into a, a whole chunk of money. And then eventually, uh, it's only about the halfway point of the movie that the gun featured that uh, Miles Truitt carries with him actually starts to get used. And at that point is when it starts to get really interesting. Honestly, I probably would have preferred it to start coming sooner into the story. But ultimate, but that's ultimately when the movie starts getting good, is when he pulls out the gun and he starts blowing crap up. And all, the, all along the way... You find out, start to learn more, not really learning about them, but you see connections to where this gun came from. There's these helmeted figures that seem to come from some otherworldly place, doesn't specify where. And they're able to track down this gun based on their, using the, utilizing their future tech. And eventually they, do, you know, so they're on the trail for this gun. Meanwhile, James Franco, who plays a, you know, sort of crime boss, like hillbilly crime boss, essentially blue collar crime boss. Uh, he, he wants, he, um, there's a, basically one of the, his attempt to collect on Rainer's debt goes south and he wants revenge. So he hunts down Rainer and Truett as they go cross country to, uh, you know, to have his vengeance. And, I will say this, the third act goes completely off the rails, and the ending is a complete cop-out. I won't spoil it for you, but suffice to say that they re like they had higher aspirations than this movie was capable of, and the way they tried to explain where the where the whole sci-fi nature of it is kind of pointless. It feel and it feels like one of you know it feels like a part one of a story that we're never gonna see part two for, you know? And that's unfortunate. But well, oh, you know, for the most part, it does hold up. Um, I will say, like, what, like the, the writing, the the storytelling of the side of the writing could, if you tightened that up and you worked on it and you streamlined it, you could have had a way better movie. But f for all the effects work they did and the you know the kind of the character dynamics that they did have, I was okay with it. You know, for a feature film debut, it's kind of wobbly. It's not that special, but it definitely showcases that the ba that the Baker brothers are capable of bigger things. Um, it's hard to say whether or not the box office will show that they'll get better things, but uh, we'll have to wait and see for that.
suffice to say that Kin was all right. Uh, I'm not saying go rush out and see it, but this would be a perfect for like a night in for Netflix, you know? For the first time in our history, we will judge our executioner. And we will warn off any who may wish to follow his example. If you fail, he escapes justice. Perhaps forever. I beg you, do not fail. While most people probably won't remember Seven Days in Entebbe, I actually do. Because we got a sort of sort of better version of what, what that was trying to be. In that we have another story about Mossad, uh, a, a sort of Mossad secret, de- now declassified operation. Uh, in Entebbe, it was rescuing hostages. In Operation Finale, it is the capture of the architect of the final solution hence finale and that is adolf eichmann notorious nazi higher up who had managed to escape to argentina and after a failed attempt to assassinate him years before they finally have a lead that he is in argentina and there and so they get you know a team their team of agents to finally bring him into israel to serve for his crimes you know, to stand trial for his crimes against the Jewish people. And it's an int- we have an interesting cast lineup for this. Is what, that, that's what really kind of caught me off guard. Because you've, uh, you've got Oscar Isaac, who's Guatemalan, playing Peter Malkin, who is kind of the, prote- the main central agent that they focus on. Um, and... He, you know, he's kind of the main one to bring about uh, Eichmann, you know, make it to make Eichmann's capture easier. And in fact, it's the, the movie is insp- it's taken mostly from Malkin's memoir, Eichmann in My Hands. And so then you've got Ben Kingsley, uh, who is half uh, half British, half white British, half Indian, playing the German Adolf Eichmann. <laughs> As you know, as the elder, both in the both as the elder Eichmann and in his and in the flashbacks, and so you've got Oscar Isaac and Ben Kingsley as the main people acting off each other, and then you also add in um, Melanie Laurent, uh, who was best known as Shoshana in uh, Inglorious Bastards, as Malkin's ex and fellow Mossad agent Hannah. You've got Nick Kroll in a in a dramatic role as Rafi Aiton, who is another. Um, Another Israeli, another Mossad agent. And then the only other um, actor I recognized was Haley Lou Richardson, who was, um, may, who was seen in Split and The Edge of Seventeen as Sylvia Herman, who I think was the, kind, the woman who brought them to Argentina, who uh, clued, the, clued Mossad in on Eichmann's whereabouts. Plus, you do have uh, Joe Alwyn. Who was best? No, who was last seen in Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk as the lead character, as Eichmann's son Klaus, and so you've got the movie focuses mainly on the operation to bring in Eichmann, and for the most, it's mostly uh, 
mostly uh, unknowns. I mean, Oscar Isaac and Ben Kingsley are probably the biggest names. Nick Kroll you would recognize. And then I, I, recognize, I didn't recognize Haley Lou Richardson, but I know the name. And then people might recognize Laurent, but she's not, you know, she doesn't quite look the same part as uh, Shoshana. And I will say this, it's a much tenser movie than Entebbe was. Entebbe dragged its feet and was no, you know, for a political thriller, it had no thrills. And yet here, this is more in the same vein as Argo. And you've got, because you've also got the planning of Eichmann following his movements. And all along the way, the Argentinians have this sort of neo-Nazi movement growing from the former Nazis and the Argentinian nationalist, far-right nationalists in a movement growing within the Argentinian you know, political sphere. And so you have these former Nazis and, and uh, Argentinian nationalists kind of joining forces in this fight against a common enemy, namely Jewish people and the Jewish state. It, because I, I'm not familiar with too much of Argentinian history, but they did mention at the time that El Al, the Israeli plane service, was not sending commercial flights to Argentina. So the, there was a so I'm guess and I'm guessing that has to do with the fact that Argentina was hiding former Nazis among their populace, and that and then the movie definitely ties into that. So. I'll you know I I'll get you know I will say this the movie definitely has that tension that you would want from a movie like this all along especially since Eichmann is not giving in until Malkin played by Oscar Isaac is starting to kind of whittle away at him and try and, you know you trying to use you know kindness and humility to tre- you know treating Eichmann not as a prisoner but as as a as, as sort of a almost a peer or at least under the guise of a peer, but once again, it's trying to play mental games between the two, and uh, so I'll that's I'll, tense for most, especially towards the end, as they as they finally start to get their um, their, you know the, their plan in action once they captured Eichmann, and now they can finally transport him back to Israel. But I'll say this: it's not as tight as Argo was. Argo was very tight in its screenplay and in its and its and in its presentation and this kind of has some weird deviation it definitely tries to play off some deviations where it goes into more fanciful like um almost hallucinations there's some flashbacks that they try to throw in and it's it it, it it's trying to be pretty expe- not experimental but tries to play a little bit more with the continuity and i feel like that wasn't all that necessary it didn't add that much to the movie at some points it worked but not it didn't work a lot of places and unfortunately it kind of dragged the movie it kind of dragged the movie in places where it came up when if it just mainly focused on the actual capture of Eichmann, it probably would have been better if they didn't try to go off on these weird detours. Uh, but it, you know, the movie that doesn't detract from the movie as a whole. It's still something that I recommend you go see. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's if nothing else, it's the current definitive retelling of the operation to capture Eichmann. And if you want something like that, if you're into a th- political thriller like that. I can highly recommend you check that out. It's well made for the most part. And, you know, like, once again, there's minor things 
that I didn't love the movie, but I definitely liked it. It's it's well made. It's got a you know it's got a solid cast. The thrills are there more so, especially when you compare it to Seven Days in Entebbe, which tr- deals with a similar premise. Israeli agents are trying to protect their citizenry or do, serve their countrymen. And the and in Entebbe was rescuing hostages, and in here it's capturing a Nazi war criminal. And putting him to justice when most of the and they and they and they remind you in the beginning of the movie, Hitler, Himmler, and Goering all committed suicide so they could avoid serving time. And here it's it's it try you know it wants it wants to hold Eichmann accountable, which they eventually were able to do if you know history. So you know, spoiler alert: he Eichmann does serve tri- serve you know stand trial uh, in Israel. But that be you know th- but. For all the nitpicks I could ha- aim at this movie, it's still a worthwhile watch, and I highly recommend you check it out if you get the chance. Especially if you're into that Argo-style political thriller. It's not, like, the best out there, but it's a it's a it's still a solid entry and one that I can recommend you go see. She had cash in her car. You felt bad about everything. She was my best friend. Oh, my God. She told me she ran away! I didn't know her. I didn't know my daughter. I'm still pissed I had to drive to the next town over to see this. For for, for your reference, um, Akron and Canton are kind of sister cities in the sense that they're like the neighbor, they're, they're like the, the two metropolitan areas that are not Cleveland size, but they're, they're close to size for each other. Akron is the seat for Summit County. Canton is kind of the seat for Stark County. They're like the they're, you know they're the two closest major city major metropolitan areas to each other, and they cut they almost kind of kiss if you can if you if you include their suburban areas like they'll kind of like jut up against each other, and that's why they have like a joint airport going to joint to them. I live on the north side of Akron, which is jutting up against our. Our other neighbor city, Kaga Falls, which is a sort of, you know, sub, kind of suburb, but also its own city that that is adjoining Akron, which is the larger metropolitan area. Meanwhile, the theater I had to go to was on Canton's north side. Uh, it is in a place called The Strip because it's a, lo- a massive, well-funded strip mall, essentially. It features... Pretty much all kinds of stories. It features books a million that overtook Borders. It features one of the fanciest Cinemarks in our area, and like it's one of those Tinseltown Cinemarks. It's a really fancy area, and then of course it's it's adjoining Stark State College, which is kind of one of the major um, uh, educational facilities in in Stark County, and. To get from where I am, in the north side of Akron, I'd have to travel in order to get down to Canton's north, Canton's, you know, North Canton, which is where this really high-end theater is based. I have to travel about 20 miles. So I have to drive into the next county over, you know, I have to drive over county lines. I have to drop, take the freeway for 20 miles and it takes about a half an hour to get there based on based on traffic conditions. Where else was this movie playing? A quick check of IMDb since Fandango won't tell me. 
is uh, about a little further away, 25 miles away in a town called Aurora, which is also over county lines in the other direction, which would take a little bit longer, more over half an hour. And then aside from that, 25 miles to my west in a town called Medina, which which has another really high-end theater, which is uh, Regal. Uh, And I like that theater, but that's closer to where my parents live, and it's a full 40-minute drive. It's about 30 miles away, and it's a full 40-minute drive, half of which I have to take on a state highway instead of the freeway. The other two, I can have basic access to the freeway to get to. So pretty much every single theater in my entire county is not playing Searching. One is playing over to my west, one is playing over to the east, northeast, and one is playing directly south, and the rest are all up towards Cleveland. I don't know why they, Summit County did not want to play this movie, but hey, screw them. I finally got a chance to see it, and you know what? It was worth it. It was worth the drive to see this, because this is one of my favorite for the year. I, you'd have to be pretty damn good to knock this off, the, off my end of the year list. It's not going to end up at the top seven, unfortunately, but it is definitely going to be an honorable mention. So what we have here is John Cho as a father of a missing girl who utilizes the computer to try and find her. And we are seeing this from the computer's perspective. It's another screen share found footage movie, which is what I've dubbed the kind of stuff that Unfriended popularized. This is directly in uh, context of those Unfriended movies. So not only did we get the sequel to Unfriended, we got a, a sort of similar style, but instead of horror, it's mystery thriller. And so Cho is the, is the main character of the movie, and he carries this movie like he is goddamn Atlas. And he is the reason to see this movie. His performance is, some, is one of the best I've seen him give. And this is coming from a guy who started off playing a stoner. That's where my introduction to John Cho. I have no idea what he did before Harold and Kumar. I know him from a stoner comedy, and he has since proven he is so much more than that. Damn it, you know what? I still say this. John Cho for Reed Richards. If you want to do old man Reed Richards, John Cho. John Cho for Reed Richards, 2020. Whenever they finally do the Fantastic Four. John Cho for Reed Richards, make that happen. That John Cho would be the perfect Reed Richards. I don't care that Reed Richards is an old white dude. John Cho could play the character and he looks the part for the most. Yo, he has that. He looks like he could play Reed Richards. Give him some gray in his hair. Perfect. Dude, dude's got it. John Cho for Reed Richards, 21 ever. Hashtag 21 ever. Uh, so yeah, John Cho is the. It, it plays. Um, the, at plays the father, David Kim. Daniel Kim? Daniel or David Kim? Hold on. Uh, David Kim. David Kim. I don't know where Daniel Kim came from. But uh, his daughter, Margot, uh, goes missing. And, it, and, and it's up to him in conjunction with police detective Deborah... Um, what's her name? Pam... No, that's the wife. Uh, Vic. Detective Vic, played by Deborah Messing. 
And as the story goes over, it's the focus is on David's computer screen as he tries to um, contact Margot's friends and figure out what could have possibly happened to her. And I don't know who the actress playing Margot is. Michelle La. Uh, apparently she was on the Gilmore Girls reboot. Uh, she's been on uh, that CBS show Mom. And that's it. This is her feature film debut. And you know what? I expect more things from her because she's, she's good in this movie too. And what David discovers is he had no idea about his daughter. He, he and his daughter spoke so little. And he tried to be like the he tried he basically acted like he you know because basically what happens is they lose he loses his wife and that's the the opening of the movie is basically up the opening of the movie is basically up uh so be prepared for that and after the loss he and his daughter kind of become distant and it's only until he starts digging through her computer that he starts to realize what's been going on and you know it, as this goes on we also get to see news coverage of the of the of her go, going missing and of her and of and also coverage of like the search party and even like social media coverage of like people think David did it especially after he go he has a violent outburst at one point um we get to see a point where David goes solo and tries to uncover things based on something he discuss something he discovers and um and he thinks his brother might be involved uh played by Joseph Lee who was Sung An on NCIS Los Angeles and Eric Chen on Rizzoli and Isles. He seems to be... Oh, he was also in Lion. Neat. Uh, so he's fairly unknown. Not big name at this point. Uh, he's also on Miracle That We Met uh, as as Geom? Geom. G-E-U-M. Sung Mu. So however you pronounce that in Korean. Uh, he's a Korean... Okay, that's a Korean drama so he's he's a both an american and a korean actor uh and he he does great uh in this movie it's sort of like the uh stoner brother to uh john cho and it's it's a really really amazingly done movie this is by a, a new relative newcomer anish chaganti this is his first feature film he's also written on shorts before this uh I think that he was fresh out of film school at this point when he got this movie and when he wrote this, when he wrote and directed this movie and he's able to do once again, because of the relative cheapness of this sort of screen share technology as a format, he's able to focus more on hiring decent actors and then maybe hiring a couple of names in this case, John Cho and Deborah Messing. And then it's able, it's telling this story about a missing girl and her father's drive to find out what happened to her. And it's the, I will say this. Some people are complaining about the ending. I kind of saw it coming. Not that it was predictable, but like there was enough breadcrumbs finding out what was going on that you could kind of pinpoint what was going on, that something was up. And eventually, you know, especially if you pay really close attention then you can figure it out for yourself. But for the most part, it you know, it, it, you don't you don't really see it coming, and it does take some contrivances. It's not a perfect five out of five for me, only because there are some contrivances. It kind of uh, kind of mistakes like certain aspects of how the internet works. For the most part, it d captures how the internet works, 
But there are some liberties being taken in order to progress the story forward. And, of course, there's always, you know, there's just always little things that you need to contrive in order for the plot to move forward rather than... And, like, like the fact that David is always calling somebody on FaceTime, you know? There are some instances where it's audio and it's the audio call, but, it, there, you know, David does so much FaceTime in this movie, it's almost like an ad for FaceTime. But for the most part, it's, you know, it's, it's still a phenomenal movie. I, could, I can't recommend you go see this enough. Hopefully it's playing closer to you than it was to me, but Searching is going to be one of the best of the year. And I expect this in like a lot of people's top tens, because it is, and it has earned that spot. Because it is a, it, it showcases especially the fact that you can do so much more than just cheapo horror movies with this thing. That was found footage's problem. Found footage struck stuck with was was built by horror movies, experimented more with sci-fi with like kaiju movies and then with superheroes in Chronicle, but then ultimately became the go-to format for cheap horror movies because they cost nothing to make and would make big bucks. And here, you, it's somebody who's really creative, who's able to take this screen share uh, idea to focus so m- everything we're seeing. We're seeing everything as a computer screen, and instead of it being like a cheapo horror movie, it's a mystery thriller. So imagine what else you could do with this format, and you know, and the the possibilities are endless. So hopefully we don't see people cashing on in this like they did with the rest of found, the found footage genre. And then we can see more interesting stories being told with it. That's all I hope for. If nothing else, this is the, this is the new high watermark for this, for this uh, format. So your, your move filmmakers, how do you follow this up? Salutations, ladies and gentlemen. It's the Popcorn Junkie here for a little Netflix and chat. Oh, right. I finally got around to watching this because in a couple of weeks on Living in the Stacks, plug for Living in the Stacks, my book, my book club podcast that I do with my friends. Uh, go check them out once you're done listening here. Uh we are about, we're going to read Fahrenheit 451 in a couple of weeks. And so, in conjunction with that, I finally got down to seeing the HBO remake. I've seen the original one, the British production, and it's, it's, it's definitely 60s British. It, it does not age well. But it does capture a lot of the aspects of the book for the most part. You know, it captures the story as well as it could. This, as the Dom has so eloquently put it, is an adaptation in name only. It captures the basics, the fact that it's a dystopian future where books are outlawed and they are burned. Uh, They've adapted that to include other modern day uh, advancements, namely the dark web and servers and, you know, this pass. And it's basically instead of just books, it's the sharing of information is outlawed. You know, you can't be sharing critical thought and, you know, his, his, any kind of books because books are also digital as well as um, paper in this in, in this uh, iteration. And so you have Guy Montag, who is played by Michael B. Jordan. Solid choice. Michael B. Jordan's a great actor. And uh, B.A.D. is played by Michael Sheen. Not Michael Sheen. Uh, Michael Shannon. There's a Michael Sheen and a Michael Shannon. They're not the same. Michael Sheen is from Frost Nixon. Michael Shannon is from is, is Zod, is our current version of Zod. 
And so Michael Shannon is Beatty, and he is dynamite. Perfect casting for that. And then you've also got Sophia Butella, one of my personal favorites, as Clarice, who once again has been aged up from 16 to probably early 20s. And they've dropped Mildred and her entire and her entire subplot, everything dealing with her. And they've also added things like Alexa, the, the sort of a sort of advanced version of Alexa. And that, you know they've done more with the the screens that they talked about in the books, in the book. Uh, but they also cut out basically the second half of the story. The first half of the story is. Essentially, you know, the setup is all there. You know, the fact that Guy runs into a woman who sets herself on fire. But they've also added a really, really stupid new plot that involves a DNA hard drive. The collect, uh, like a, a several terabytes or whatever of all of the known information in the world shit set, set, you know, collected in a single particle of a DNA molecule. Now, I know DNA computing is a thing, but it vastly over, you know, tries to oversimplify how DNA computing works. It's almost like the people didn't know how DNA computing works. Um, and so now that's the thing that they have to find. And, and they only find it out because the woman gave away the code word, except there's no reason for her to give away the code word. Like what? She's going to assume that one of the firemen is going to is going to be on their side and help them out, or then of course down the line it turns into this the secret society that guy runs into at the end of the book is living out in the outskirts of the city, which because that's now your new punishment is that you have your identity taken away and you have to live without internet and the outskirts of the city, which doesn't make any sense. Also, we're in Cleveland. We're in Cleveland for some reason, and yet there's no evidence that this looks even remotely close to Cleveland. Why is this in Cleveland? Why doesn't it look like Cleveland? Um, so Guy is, it becomes disenfranchised with the firefighting, and he tries to understand more about the like that he does in the book. But unfortunately, while the book established that he was already kind of on his way out, and it just took Clarice to kind of push him over the edge, here it's just... He's got a boner. He got a boner for this chick, and so he basically betrays his entire lineage. And they try to add in another thing where, like, he's an adoptive son to Beatty, which doesn't make any damn sense, and it doesn't go anywhere, really. And then it, everything that was good about the book, which I still kind of find problematic, but mainly because Ray Bradbury has become has shown himself to be kind of problematic towards the end. Suffice to say, don't look up anything that. Ray Bradbury said about political correctness or technology because he turns into old man yelling at cloud at that point. <laughs> Ironic that uh, most people will probably read his books on, uh, on electronic tablets rather than a physical cop. And he'd be like, God damn kids, too much internets. Literal quote from Ray Bradbury. There's too much internets at plural internets. <laughs> oh buddy. Oh buddy. You lived too long. Uh, not, nothing against Bradbury. Once again, Bradbury is a very prolific author. Dude couldn't change with the times. Dude is very stuck in his ways. Old man yells at cloud. That's all I'm saying. So, this, but this movie has no comprehension of why Fahrenheit 451 is even taught in schools. Why is Fahrenheit 451 so well regarded? Why is it Bradbury's most prominent work? Because it talks about how society caves into 
simplicity over over complicate you know complexity. They would much rather be, everything be told for them, and r- rather than to sit and think for themselves. That was the whole point: is that people get involved in these these soap operas through the television screens because they're simple. They're they're just ways of escapism. Meanwhile, there's also a war going on, and the whole thing ends in nuclear holocaust. So none of that's in this version either. That it not. Here, things that are missing from the book that should be in every adaptation and yet have ne- have been in none. The the background war, war, you know, the war games going on in the background that ultimately leads to the destruction of the human race, and the beast, the hound. It's an eight legged robot dog. They could have HBO has the money to do the hound. Where is my spider dog? Why don't I have my spider dog? What the hell, HBO? What the hell? The whole third act just goes completely off the rails. Just makes up its own damn movie. In which case, if you're going to make your own damn movie, why call it by something else? That's the thing I never understand. Why call it something when literally it has nothing to do with that thing? Just change enough of it. Make your own damn movie. Don't call this Fahrenheit 451 if you're not going to tell the story of Fahrenheit 451. This really is just a. This is this is HBO at its at its worst. Namely, that it, they it, by allowing for directors to do their own thing. Sometimes directors are just incompetent, and that's what this director is. It's Dom also made the comparison that it's basically Equilibrium but boring. Which yeah, Equilibrium was Fahrenheit 451, but for all knowledge, and it was an it was a cheesy action movie. Meanwhile, Fahrenheit 451 tries to be Equilibrium, but was really boring. And doesn't understand anything about the source material. So what could have been a really neat updated version of the story turns into equilibrium but dumber and more boring. So skip Fahrenheit 451. Watch the 60s version if you must. I think there's like a radio version that somebody adapted. That may be good. Listen to the audiobook. Read the book. Those are the better. Anything that's tied into the book directly is the best version ultimately. This is just another case of people not knowing how to adapt from page to screen. The 60 version probably is the best adaptation, and it's not all that faithful either. So, whatever. And in which case, we're done with the review portion, so let's get into the discussion, which is just basically a fall preview. Did you know Ash's name in Japan is Satoshi after Pokemon creator Satoshi Tajiri? Did you know Roroni is a neologism created by the original author of the Roroni Kenshin manga? Did you know Godzilla's Japanese name is a portmanteau of gorilla and whale? If you want to learn about these subjects and more, listen to Majide, a Westerner's view of Japanese media and culture, available only on the Gumby Cat Network. weekend upon release, the summer has come to an end and we're starting to head into the fall season. 
And so in lieu of that, I've decided to forego a, a full on, any kind of discussion to focus on what's to come. And so aside from next week, which you'll hear about in the trailer talks, uh, I'm going to look at the what's to come for the rest of 2018. So we're not only encompassing all of fall, September, October, November, but we're also going to look at what's coming out in December as well. So this is the rest of 2018 preview. So we're going to start off with 914, September 14th, uh, week after next. And in that way, and in, for that weekend, our big opener is the predator, which is Shane Black's second four way into franchise filmmaking. Namely, well, he kind of started off making franchise films with like the Lethal Weapon series, but he's mainly done his own independent stories. Like, he's always kind of tried to do his own thing. The last time he did a franchise thing, it was Iron Man 3. And if you want to hear my issues on Iron Man 3, check out the first episode of Make a Better Movie, because I lay them out there. Uh, suffice to say that his last movie, The Nice Guys, was excellent. And it'll be interesting to see how he handles, because he's worked on the Predator franchise before. He actually helped write the original Predator screenplay. So him returning to the franchise as a director is going to be interesting. And this is going to be the fourth solo Predator movie. And also, and the basic premise here is that there's, an, there's a beacon that's um, set off by a little kid that brings the Predators back to Earth. And it's up to, like, a team of uh, Navy SEALs and I think a scientist to... Well, Navy SEALs, like, covert uh, operations kind of uh, military personnel. It's up to, you know, the milita- you know this, this covert ops, military, and, some, and a scientist to kind of stop the Predators before they take over, before they, I don't know, I'm not sure. The Predator has always been about, you know, finding, you know, he's a hunter. He's he's basically a big game hunter. He's up for trophies. So I'm not sure what they're trying to do with this new version. Also, apparently they're going to be introducing female Predators, which didn't know the Predators needed gender binaries. So we'll see how it turns out. I'm interested to see how it turns out. It should be okay at, 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 at at worst, it should be okay. I doubt this will be outright terrible, but I've been let down by Shane Black before. That same weekend, we get the new Paul Feig movie, which is called A Simple Favor. You may know, you may, readers may know this as based on the novel from last year by Darcy Bell. And the main premise is uh, a mom blogger played by Anne Hathaway. Not Anne Hathaway, Anna Kendrick. Very similar looks about them. Uh, you know, the, I don't know. Anyway, Anna Kendrick plays a mommy blogger. And her best friend, played by Blake Lively, goes dis- she disappears, and it's up to Anna Kendrick to find out what happened to her. This movie also features, is also the second feature film to, to star Henry Golden. Fresh off his success in, Asian, in, rich, in, crazy, in Crazy Rich Asians, he has been featured in this movie. So, dude is a star on the rise. It'll be interesting to see what he does next. So, this should be good. Uh, it's a decent premise. Paul Feig is normally good. This is uh, this doesn't seem to be going along the lines of his usual like Melissa, McCart- Melissa McCarthy sort of pratfall farcical comedy fare. This seems to be more of a darker comedy, and that should be and that should be good. It looks good. It's got a really interesting aesthetic to it. It's kind of like neo fifties, and that that'll be interesting. That also that weekend is Pure Flix's Unbroken, Path to Redemption. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, I swear I know that title. That's because Unbreakable is the name of the biopic, bio, biography, and biopic, because they're both the same title, of Louis Zamperini. 
Now, Unbreakable is not one of my favorite movies, but I recommend it as a good movie because it's a solid movie. It's not the best sort of wartime drama, but it is a decent movie. Pure Flix has decided to take anything interesting about Louis Zamperini and forego it to focus on the fact that he becomes a born-again Christian. Because that's what we all needed to know about Louis Zamperini. Angelina Jolie already told the story. We don't need it again, but more Christy. Like, the whole focus is going to be on the fact that his wife goes to see a Billy Graham sermon. And then she's, she sees the light. God damn you, Pure Flix. Why do I have to see your trash? Can't you just put it online where I don't have to see it? At any rate, that's September 14th. On September 21st, we've got The House with a Clock in Its Walls, which is... A kid's movie directed by Eli Roth. Wait, what? Wait, wait, seriously? Like, Eli Roth? As in, like, blood and splatter, Quentin Tarantino, acolyte Eli Roth? The dude who just bo- the, the, that just botched the Death, Death Wish remake? That Eli Roth? Apparently so. Apparently Eli Roth is directing a kid's movie. Couldn't do worse than Robert Rodriguez did. Uh, this is based on the book... From 1971, I believe, by John Belairs, and it fe- deals with wizardry and witchcraft uh, as a kid moves into his eccentric uncle's house, and it finds out that there's like a clock living within his walls, and as it ticks down, that it leads to some sort of catastrophic event, and they have to figure out what happened, you know, why this is going on. This definitely feels very Harry Potter-inspired. It feels like a, it's sort of like a Harry Potter cash grab, which is also 10 years way too late for it to be a Harry Potter cash grab, and also none of the Harry Potter wannabes ever worked out. Who knows? Maybe it'll be, maybe it'll be its own thing. It'll, be, it'll do better. All I know is that Kate Blanchett is in it, and that at least will give it two stars. Because if, even if it sucks, I got Kate Blanchett. So I'm good. That same weekend, we've also got Life Itself, which is from Dan Fogelman last uh, his last feature film was Danny Collins, which is a weird sort of dramedy starring Al Pacino as an aging lounge singer. And he's best known probably as the creator of the t- hit TV show This Is Us. And this is going to be a multi-generational romantic dramedy that takes place between New York and Spain. Doesn't say where in Spain. I'm assuming probably like maybe Madrid or Barcelona. Barcelona. Um... The funny thing about this was, I said I wasn't, the, I wasn't feeling the trailer, and the actual Twitter account for the movie said, don't worry, you'll probably be feeling the movie. I, let me pull up the actual tweet. I still got it. I kept that. I kept that, because this, is, this reminds me of the time that uh, freaking the director of the Straw Dogs remake got, hit me up on Twitter because I was trash-talking his movie, which ultimately sucked and didn't hold up to the Sam Peckinpah movie, but... You know, history, history, uh, you know, let it, let it be known who won that argument. Um, meanwhile, here, uh, the Life Itself Twitter account said, trust us, when you see Life Itself on 921, you'll be feeling it. And, you know what? For your sake, I hope, I hope so. I, I never want to see bad movies, so maybe it's just a bad trailer and the movie will be really good. I'm not familiar with Dan Fogelman. I never saw Danny Collins, so... We'll see how he does in feature film again with uh, Life Itself. Uh, that same weekend, we see the wide distribution of the Sony Pictures, um, well, Columbia Pictures, the Sony-released biopic of Richard Wersch Jr., R- White Boy Rick. And for those who don't know, Richard Wersch Jr., Wersch? 
Wersh. Wersh. W-E-R-S-H-E. He was a 14-year-old drug dealer in Detroit City who went and turned FBI informant. And this has got a great supporting cast. Matthew McConaughey, Bruce Dern. Oh, God, who was the woman? Uh, Bruce Dern's wife. I took a while, took a hot second for me to recognize. Um, Jennifer Jason Lee is one of the FBI agents. And you've got um, Piper Laurie. That's who it is. Piper Laurie is uh, Bruce Dern's wife. Piper Laurie, you probably remember as Margaret White, the mom from Carrie, and Catherine Martell from Twin Peaks. So he, she's here. She's, I'm glad to see if she's still around and then it's going to be interesting to see how they use her in this movie. But yeah, you got Jennifer Jason Lee, uh, Rory Cochran is the other FBI agent. And the, this is the, this is, um, Richie Merritt's first movie. He's going to be playing white. He's going to be playing Ricky Wersh and it's going to be, and if he does well, I'm, I expect to see him in more stuff. We'll see how it goes, but this looks, this looks interesting. This is also swapped with alpha in order to try and tie into the uh, Oscar season, the awards season, and get a big awards push. So we'll see if that gambit worked for them. It sucks that Alpha got thrown under the bus for in the hopes of freaking awards appeal. But, I don't know. Anyway, uh, it, we'll see how it goes. That same weekend, it doesn't say... It says limited release in, on some of the sites. I, I cross-referenced IMDb, Fandango... The numbers and the Wikipedia page for 2018 in film. And this is all I could gather was coming out when. So on 921, we should be getting um, the first English language film from French director Jacques Odiad. 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 I'm terrible at French. I deeply apologize. And this will be his first. Uh, he's, a, he's an established French director, and this is his first English language film. Like I said, we're going to see some debuts this fall, and it's going to, I love seeing what new people come up with. And here we've got a dark Western comedy based on the novel by Patrick DeWitt called The Sisters Brothers, where John C. Riley and Joaquin Phoenix play two brother assassins who have to hunt down a prospector who stole money from their boss, feature, also featuring the likes of Jake Gyllenhaal, Riz Ahmed, Rutger Hauer, and Carol Kane. So this looks like it's going to be right up my alley. I hope I get a chance to see it. I hope it's not limited release. I really hope this gets a wide release because it looks like a hell of a lot of fun. Uh, the next week in the roundup September, we've got Night School, which is the latest from the director of Undercover, Undercover Brother and Girls Trip. So he's got a decent pedigree as far as directing goes. Um, you may know this movie as the one that stars Kevin Hart and Tiffany Haddish. We also have featuring, um, you know, supporting comedians like Kevin, uh, Rob Riggle from The Daily Show, Mary Lynn Ricegub, who I know from various TV podcasts and uh, supporting roles in film. She's a great um, kind of, uh, uh, why well, can't I remember it? it I'm, I'm thinking sitcom, but it's not sitcom. It's sketch comedy. It's improv. I don't know why I was getting S. For some reason. She's kind of an improv comic. And she I've heard nothing but good things. And I remember I liked her and what I see. I did not recognize her in this movie. But she's the one talking about the beaten butt on the first date. Um, 
she's she's really funny. I hope she's not just resorted to riffing in this movie, though. Ben Schwartz is here. Uh, Taryn Killam from SNL is here as the principal who puts on the black voice. <laughs> I don't hear color. He looks like a lot of fun. Uh, Robin Malco is going to be in it. Keith David is going to make an appearance I saw on the cast list. So it's a solid cast. Uh, it's a good director. Uh, the basic premise is Kevin Hart needs to earn his GED by going to night school. The trailers have been really bad. I don't know if it's just bad trailers or if it is going to be that bad. But we'll have to wait to the end of the month to find out. That same weekend, we also see we finally get the chance to see the latest from Warner Brothers animation. And the director of James and the Giant Peach and the Spiderwick Chronicles, because apparently they're the same guy, also did the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy from like 2006, 2004, I think. Uh, and that is Smallfoot, which is a reversal on the Looking for Bigfoot, where a cult, where a, a clan, tribe, whatever you want to call them, of yetis are living in the Himalayas, and one of them is trying to find proof of the elusive Smallfoot, or what they call humans. Weird celebrity cast here. I mean, you've got Channing Tatum, Zendaya. That's you know, that's that. Th- those are those are guys. Yeah, those are recognizable names. Also, we've got Common. You know, Common, who will show up later in this list as well because he's got another movie coming up. He's got several movies coming up. Common has been working, man. Uh, as well as LeBron James. That's right, former Cleveland Cavaliers. Star LeBron James is in is gonna be in a movie about Big Feet. It's gonna be Yeti. He's gonna be Yeti. This movie, uh, it's also been delayed. It was originally set to to come out in spring of this year. It's been pushed all the way to the end of September. I would not be surprised if this got postponed again the same way that freaking. Um, what was it? Uh, Alpha did, or that uh, Animal Crackers is still supposed to come out in theaters. That's a that was another one. Gnome, Gnome alone never fi- never came out in theaters. Uh, they finally put Duck Duck Goose on Netflix. Sorry for the British listeners who had to see that in theaters. So we'll see. We'll see with this one. It, I, it, it's it's the the what it presents is a generic kids movie, and I don't see it making back its money, so maybe they'll just dump it to Netflix or do a limited run and then dump it to Netflix. I don't see this being a, a, a hit of any kind. That same weekend, we've got a horror... We, got, we kick off the horror movies with Hellfest, which is the directorial debut of the editor for Get Out, Gregory Plotkin. This is his, so we've got the editor for Academy Award-winning Get Out making his directorial debut with a movie about a killer at a Halloween theme park. The biggest name I saw on the cast list was Tony Todd. You know, so the movie may or may not be in good hands. Uh, anyway, I don't know. I don't expect this to be really good, like, biting horror movie like the way Get Out was. This is probably going to be just a splatter movie. In which case, if it can be fun, that it doesn't need to be good. Fun is better than bad. Fun is better than boring. Good is better than bad. So if you can't be good, be fun. If you can't be fun, be good. That's all. Uh, we've got a second Pure Flix movie in the month of September. Not what you think it is, though. This is the adaptation for Little Women. That's right. Remember the Louisa May Alcott book? The one that's kind of, emb- that kind of become emblematic of, of female literature? 
Yeah, Pure Flix is going to turn that into a movie. It's set in the modern day and it's filmed entirely in Utah. At the same time, Greta Gerwig is already working on an adaptation of, the, of this book, so I don't expect good things. Leah Thompson is the only name I recognize in the cast. So, yeah, I brought this up with my uh, co-host on Living in the Sacks, Diana, and she was just like, oh, I mentioned, I mentioned, I, me- I looked it up when we brought it up, and I thought oh, it was Pure Flix, and we were both, like, cringed. Like, we could feel the pain. So, I don't, hopefully they won't show this in theater. Hopefully they won't show this in many theaters. Luis May Alcott deserves better. That Greta Gerwig adaptation is probably going to be way better than whatever crap they're trying to pull with this. And of course, in limited release, but could possibly come out in wide release that weekend, is The Old Man and the Gun, which is the latest from Robert Redford. Not directed by Robert Redford, but directed by David Lowry, who has um, done Ain't Them Body Saints, and also did the Pete's Dragon remake for um, Disney. So this is his second collaboration with Redford, and his latest collaboration with noted douchebag Casey Affleck. Still putting him in stuff, I see. Can't be helped sometimes, I guess. Can't be helped who wants to work with who. Oh, well. Uh, based on the life of Forrest Tucker, who is um, a, a career criminal, this centers on the end of his life in the 70s when he went on a bank robbing spree. So a man in the 70s, armed only with a gun and his gentlemanly attitude, went around robbing banks and could not be caught. This is going to be an interesting movie. Also stars Sissy Spacek, Danny Glover, and Tom Waits, Cookie Monster himself. <laughs> oh, I love that video. Yeah, it looks good. I love it. It's, this is going to be one I want to see with my dad. This is going to be right up his alley. Uh, so I hope I hope it comes out wide, and I hope I get a chance to see it with my dad. With my dad. <laughs> I'm sorry. I watch too much Game Grumps. Uh, anyway, we head into October with October 5th, and the big release that weekend is like a turd in the wind because it's Venom. I don't know who wrote that line, but... Damn, damn, that was a bad line. Like I felt that line, like I was a, like it was, I was being covered in that turd. That was a turd of a line. You, sh- you should have thrown that, crumpled that line up on paper and thrown it to the wind because that was terrible. Anyway, apparently Sony does want to try to tie this into the MCU without the fact that there is any sort of Spider-Man and the fact that Venom was born out of the fact that. The symbiote was tied to Spider-Man, so that basically forgoes the actual origin of... This movie's gonna be bad, we all know it. Tom Hardy could have made a good Eddie Brock in a good movie. We also got Riz Ahmed returning. What was the last thing I saw? said he was gonna be in? Um, or is that later on in the list? He m- m- must have been later on in the list. Riz Ahmed is gonna be in a whole bunch of stuff uh, coming up. So he's gonna be playing the villain, Carlton Drake, who is in the comics known as Homo Arachnus. But in here they're gonna make him riot. And if you don't know who any of those characters are, you don't read you don't you aren't a Spider-Man scholar. I had to actually look those names up, so I'm not either. So I'm not shaming you. I'm just saying they're they're they just they just don't care. They they don't care, so this'll hopefully come and go like a turd in the wind. That's gonna be a mean line for the rest of human history. And it deserves to be. It is outright terrible. Um, That same weekend, though, we see Bradley Cooper's directorial debut. 
which is the third remake of the 1937 movie A Star is Born. Now, depending on how old you are, you, you may know one older reference to the, you know, one older version of the story. The main one, the old 1937 one is gone, mostly forgotten, but it was remade in the 40s with Judy Garland and I believe James Cagney. Maybe James Cagney was the 30s one. I don't remember. Suffice to say that Judy Garland was in the 40s. That's one most people knew for the longest time. And then in the 70s, Barbara Streisand was, it was remade with Barbara Streisand in the lead role. And that seems to be the main impetus. That seems to be the biggest, the most direct connection between versions of the story. It seems that they're switching from rock and roll to country. And uh, we're going to see, this time around, we've got Lady Gaga. Bradley Cooper's directs and, I think, writes and then stars in this movie where he discovers Lady Gaga and he kind of brings her into prominence, her character into prominence. And most of the soundtrack is going to be written by Gaga as well as some parts co-written by Bradley Cooper. So this is going to be interesting. Um, It also features the likes of Andrew Dice Clay, Dave Chappelle, and Sam Elliott. So it'll be interesting. Apparently there was also an adaptation, another version planned in the early 2010s where it's going to be directed by Clint Eastwood and star Beyonce, but that never went anywhere. So this is the version we got, and I hear good things. People are excited about it. So we'll, I'll have to do a binge watch of all the other adaptation of all the other versions of this story and see which I like the best. Anyway, we're going to the next week, October twelfth, with First Man, directed by Damien Chazelle, one of my least favorite directors. He's every film snob's favorite golden, current golden boy, and one of my least favorite directors. Why? I hate Whiplash, and I hate La La Land. I hate Whiplash mainly because it's overhyped. Whiplash is about a complete and utter douchebag striving to be a jazz drummer. And the drive is there, but his character is an asshole, an unrepentant dickbag. And the only reason to see Whiplash is for J.K. Simmons. He is the highlight of that movie. And Miles Teller deserves everything he gets in that movie. I don't know about him personally, but his character is a complete and utter douche nozzle. So I don't feel bad for him. At all. I don't feel bad for him at all. He, he, he's, he's, he's the dumbass who put that on himself. And I don't see it as a strive for greatness. Because he doesn't achieve greatness. He's trying to achieve some level of perfection that doesn't matter, ultimately. He's just a, he's just a jazz snob. Once again, Damien Chazelle is a filthy jazz snob. Because he also see that in La La Land, where it's up to Ryan Gosling to save jazz music in the modern age because that's what true jazz and when he makes modern jazz it's not the same man <sighs> gag me god Damien Chazelle's just a hipster douchebag of the highest order hate hate his work do not like his work and now he's going to tackle Neil Armstrong with Ryan Gosling as Neil Armstrong so one of the most boring actors to watch Stars as Neil Armstrong, who probably has, who was a very interesting man, I'm assuming. You're not going to see that in this movie. Uh, Claire Foy is going to be playing his first wife. Corey Stoll is going to be playing Buzz Aldrin, so that'll be what, that'll be my guy to watch. Because Buzz Aldrin is, is a real, real character. Like, uh, uh, both, both in the, both in, in this time period and since then. Buzz Aldrin has become the go-to astronaut. Uh, you know, after, after, you know, he's like a, he's like the last real astronaut celebrity. And so 
That, he, I, I'm assuming Corey Stahl can capture that sort of, like, not capriciousness, but like gumption, that, sort of that chutzpah that Aldrin is known for. Unfortunately, it also completely omits all of the work seemingly, but seemingly omits all, none of the, it doesn't mention any of the women featured in Hidden Figures, who were the real reason NASA got anything done back in the day, and it's a collection of mostly black calculators, women who did calculating by hand, and it's going to be focusing on Armstrong, and it's going to be played by an actor who can't exhibit pathos or emotion at all. Ryan Gosling is if a statue was given life and expected and expected to act. He is not a good actor. I don't care. Like, people think he's handsome. Fine. He is not. I have yet to see him give a good, great performance. I have yet to see him do anything other than just stare blankly into the middle distance when he's when he's when he's when he's supposedly acting. Yeah. So I don't like. I don't like Ryan Gosling. I don't like Damien Chazelle. And apparently this also omitted the, the iconic scene of Neil Armstrong planting the American flag on the moon. You know? The most important thing Neil Armstrong was known for? The fact that he went to the moon and he planted the American flag? One small step for man? I'm not even... Conservatives are more outraged than I am. But I'm like... I don't like... Like, why? I'm more outraged because why? Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you just put the seed in? Just put the seed in. That's an important point in history. That's what, that's what Neil Armstrong is most famous for. It's like... It's like making a biopic of Nixon and not doing his concession... His I'm not a crook speech. Or, or, or like... Um, what, what's another one? Uh, what's a, what, I'm trying to think. Uh, it, it's like doing like a movie about the Hindenburg and then never... Never using the line, oh, the humanity, at any point in it. This was iconic in history. People around the world remember Neil Armstrong planting the flag on the moon. Why wouldn't you just put it in the damn movie? You hack. Hell, even Mark, Ruff- Mark Ruffalo's with me. Mark Ruffalo's, Rick, Mark Ruffalo's the same kind of pinko commie bastard. Maybe he's not commie, but he's, a, he's the same pinko liberal that I am, and he's also outraged because this is outrageous. Why wouldn't you do the thing? It's the thing that he's most known for. Why wouldn't you just put it in the movie? And of course, on top of that, you also hear from Armstrong's sons and the biographer that wrote the book that this movie is based on have all come out and said that this movie is a mischaracterization of Armstrong. So you didn't want to tell the story. You didn't tell want to tell a real story about Neil Armstrong, and you omitted the one thing he is most iconic for in all of human history, not just American history, human history. The hell, man! What the hell, man! This is what I'm saying with Chazelle. He's a hipster douchebag who couldn't be bothered to put in the most iconic part of Armstrong's career. Because it was about his character, man. And then when you talk to the actual people who knew Armstrong, they're calling BS on your so-called characterization of him. That was the last movie that did that. Um, oh, I remember. One of my least favorite of last year. Professor Marston and the, and the Wonder Women. That was a complete mischaracterization of somebody from history, too. But you know what? Professor Marston is less notable, you know, is less notable, sadly, because he's mainly known for creating the lie detector and Wonder Woman. So, and more people would rather hear the salacious parts of his of his history 
which are never verified. They're just all speculation. So you just made a softcore porn under the guise of a biopic. Congratulations. You made a Skinamax movie for theaters. Still can't believe people praise that movie. The only thing that movie has going for it is... Said my piece. Said my piece on Professor Marston. So yeah, this first man movie is going to be complete and utter trash. I hate Chiselle. I hate Chiselle. I don't have good. I don't expect good things coming from him on that end. I want to go in unbiased because I just. I I I already don't like this movie. From the from the conceit alone, the fact that we're already hearing another iteration of the Neil Armstrong story because I feel like I've been, that was already like, like we we were taught Armstrong in high school. It's been middle school. Classes teach about Armstrong and history. We know the Neil Armstrong story for the most part. What do you have to add to Armstrong going to the moon? We've seen this before. Hidden Figures was a story we never heard from before. Most people never knew about those women before that movie. That woman is a national hero, and I've already forgotten her name. Damn it. I'm a terrible person. I've already forgotten the name from Hidden Figures. She's still alive, too. Still a wonderful woman. I think she's over 100 now. Katherine Johnson. American hero. More movies about her, damn it. You know, more... Why didn't, why didn't she, like, at least, like, a, a, a cameo? Why didn't there, like, a, a, a couple of scenes focused on the calculators? Because they were there. They were there. You can't just omit them from history because you want to focus on your all-white cast. I didn't see them anywhere in the cast list. Maybe they'll be in the final movie. Suffice to say that... Oh, we didn't need... We could have had another movie about this. Sure. We could have had another movie about retelling the story of the first trip to the moon. Why don't you just tell the story about the first trip to the moon then, you hipster hack? Hopefully this proves that Damien Chazelle is, is exactly what, I've, what I called him out as. A hipster douchebag hack who only, who only makes movies to placate the L.A. crowd. That's all it is. He, yo, he's the kind of douchebag that plays in L.A. He should not be making movies for the rest of us. I'm sorry. You like La La Land, you like Whiplash, go ahead. I cannot stand him or his movies, and I doubt this will change my mind. But I'm going to try and go in without any of this sort of bias and just let the movie happen as it will. And then I'll make my decision, and then I'll, you know, I'll give my critique afterwards. Thankfully, that same weekend, we get a good movie. <laughs> uh, going to lean into that. This is going to be the, uh, the second movie from the director of Cabin in the Woods, Drew Goddard. Mainly known for her screenwriting credits, which I didn't write down in my notes for some reason. So I'm going to pull them up on his IMDb. Helped produce The Martian. And is a big time producer. He's also, been announced, he's also been attached to the X-Force movie. And was supposedly also writing the screenplays for Robopocalypse and The Sinister Six. So we'll see if that ever gets off the ground. But he's also known for showrunning the Daredevil series. Uh, wrote the screenplay for World War Z. Wrote on Buffy, Lost, Alias, Angel. So that's where he's best known for. He also helped write Cloverfield. And this is going to be his second directorial feature. uh, Feature film, at least. And it's called Bad Times at the El Royale. And it looks awesome. Takes place in a fictional hotel on on Lake Tahoe that sits on the border between Nevada and California. And it stars Jeff Bridges, Dakota Johnson, John Hamm, Chris Hemsworth, Nick Offerman, and a British singer I'm not familiar with named Cynthia Erivo. 
and it's going to take place in it's seemingly the 60s, I'm guessing. And it's about uh, several strangers who end up at the same Lake Tahoe Hotel as just everything just goes to hell. And it's got a great trailer to it, and I can't wait to see what the final product looks like. I'm excited for this one. I love stuff like this. And that weekend rounds out with Goosebumps 2. Because apparently we needed a sequel to Goosebumps. I didn't mind Goosebumps. I liked Goosebumps, but we were good with Goosebumps. We didn't need another Goosebumps, unless you were going to try to do more of the individual stuff. A new Goosebumps series I could have seen. Uh, Just a Goosebumps 2 Haunted Halloween. From the director of The Duff. Not a big fan of that movie. There's no Jack Black. None of the returning cast. It's all new. But they bring back Slappy. And they have him played by somebody else. Who's going to be doing a Jack Black impression, I'm guessing. Who knows? Maybe it'll be decent. I have. I don't have high hopes. Sony has, Sony has been nothing but a disappointment to me. This is the same, the same month where they're releasing Venom. So, yeah. Anyway, next weekend, October 19th, we've got Halloween, produced by Blumhouse, directed by the guy who directed Pineapple Express, and Stronger, David Gordon Green. So he's kind of all over the place. He can do drama, he can do comedy. It'll be interesting to see how he handles horror. Co-written by Danny McBride. Didn't expect that, did ya? Neither did I. That's right. Comedian Danny McBride is going to be co-writing and having a having like a bit part in this Halloween re- continuation. The idea here is that it's the 40th it's going to be right it's going to actually be the week before the 40th anniversary. So if it was if it wanted to do something cool, it would have it would have it would have um released on 1026 and be right on the week of week of the 40th anniversary. That would have been awesome. Maybe it's trying to lead into the 40th anniversary and that was the closest date they could get to. Uh, without going over, but we'll see. It's it's uh, we got Laurie Strode, so you've got um, Jamie Lee Curtis reprising her role again, and this time she is the Loomis character. She's the one who knows the most about uh, Michael Myers at this point, and it's her kind of final showdown with him. So we'll see how that turns out. That uh, that looks the trailer looks great. Weird pedigree. Danny McBride and David Gordon Green, who worked together on Pineapple Express, are bringing us. The the newest Halloween movie under the production of Jason Blum. Did not see this coming. So, movie looks good. That's all I care about. That same weekend, we get uh, the latest from uh, the director of Notorious, Men of Honor, and Soul Food. I did not write his name down, unfortunately. But it's uh, The Hate You Give. Which is uh, an adaptation of the novel by the same name from a couple of years ago. Uh... George Tillman Jr. is the director. And here we've got the book by Angie Thomas, which is deals with a young black girl who has the code switch, which for those who are not familiar with the term, it's when uh, minorities, specifically black people, but minorities have to code switch between their native culture and white culture. That's when they have to, you know, cause, so it, it shows cases in the trailer how uh, the Mandela Stenberg, Seeing her in more stuff, that's awesome, is, um, has to act, you know, kind of, you know, she's in the school for, uh, rich white kids, and so she has to integrate, so to speak, and so she doesn't, she mentions that she doesn't have, she can't act ghetto in front of them, and 
And meanwhile, on the weekends, she gets to hang out with her neighborhood kids, which are a poor, you know, a poor, you know, more black centric community. And after her, one of her best friends is shot unarmed, is un, is unarmed and shot by a white police officer. She kind of has to just kind of essentially decide what she, you know, whether she sides with her community or try, tries to keep the school thing going. You know, she whether she want, you know, cause, cause the rich white kids are going to side with the cop and she's going to have to deal with, you know, what, what kind of whose side she's on, so to speak. And it's it, it look it's a great premise. I love Amanda Stenberg. She's gonna nail this. I I have no doubt of that. Uh, you also got Regina Hall and Common as her parents. Anthony Mackie plays a character in this movie. He seems to be a more militant character in the movie. Who's very you know who's very who's much more standoffish with authority. I it's definitely very prescient. It's definitely of this time. And I can't wait to see how it turns out. I really hope it's good because it, if it's not, if it can't be, if it can't be good with everything going for it, then that's a sad shame. I don't expect it to be bad, but I really hope it it, it lives up to the hype. Is all I'm saying. And then the last week, last of that weekend is going to be Serenity, which is um, from mainly a writer and showrunner. I keep forgetting to write down people's names in my notes, uh, but not to be confused with the uh, Firefly movie of the same name. This is from Stephen Knight, who is best known for uh, Dirty Pretty Things. He wrote on Eastern Promises, Peaky Blinders. He wrote the 2013 movie Locke, which was about Tom Hardy in the car, and it was uh, it was an interesting movie. That was his last directorial movie. Apparently, he's writing a draft for World War Z two. He's going to adapt a Christmas Carol into a miniseries or TV show. Uh, he wrote on the screenplay for The Girl in the Spider's Web, which we'll talk about. And um, yeah, he's mainly known for a, for writing. And then he, he this is his third feature film. He did Redemption and Locke in 2013. Redemption is a Jason Statham movie uh, about a, an ex-forces soldier uh, in London's underground. And then Locke was Tom Hardy uh, talking talking to people on the phone in this car. And it was a pretty decent um, one-man show, so to speak, from what I hear. I never got the chance to see it. But uh, he's this is his latest. He's writing and directing, and it's about um, a fisherman. doesn't say where. It's filmed in Mauritius, though, so I'm guessing some exotic locale. And his uh, past comes back to haunt him when his ex-wife, played by Anne Hathaway, tracks him down and... Asks for his help dealing with her current spouse, played by Jason Clark, and it's kind of this. They describe it's described as a neo noir thriller, and it trailer looked great. I have high expectations for this. I expect you know it's a Stephen Knight as I don't, haven't seen bad things from him, but I also haven't seen anything from him. So we'll see um, the final product when it comes out. But I have, I I like it. I like what I see so far, and then we end October. On the 26th, with the latest Johnny English movie. That's right. We're doing another Johnny English movie. Now, for those who don't know, Johnny English uh, was born out of a bank marketing campaign. That's a, I found that out in the research for the uh, commercials turned into feature films discussion a couple of weeks back. Um, and in 2003, you had the first movie. 
which see, seems to have been middle of the road, not one of the most well-regarded uh, spy comedies, spy parodies. And that was Rowan Atkinson and um, John Malkovich as the, as the big leads. And it's just, you know, MI5 agent uh, is, becomes their only spy. And then you had the sequel, Johnny English, what was it, Reborn in 2011, which featured Rosamund Pike. And um, anybody else I recognize? Rosamund Pike, Dominic West is in here. Uh, Don't recognize anybody else. Rowan Atkinson seems to be the only um, mainstay of this whole franchise. And, um, And so he's brought back after eight years to... Do uh do another one of these, and then after and then fifteen years later, we get another one of these. This is the weirdest drawn out franchise I've ever seen, and so Johnny English strikes again, and he becomes and he once again, like in the first movie, becomes the only intelligence officer able to try and stop a counter terror a cyber terrorist attack. And the only other person I recognized in the entire movie was Emma Thompson, as the who plays the Prime Minister. I don't know this franchise, and apparently it's very middling. I, but I guess enough people like it that it's able to continually make more of them. It'll be interesting just to look at the breakdown of this franchise and just see why we are getting more of these movies based on a an ad campaign because that's remember that's exactly how this movie came about anyway that week weekend also brings us the american debut of south african director donovan marsh no idea about him maybe if i have listeners in africa or south africa or people who know the name uh, they can let me know. Once again, if you know anything and want to add your two cents, you can always send emails to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. And uh, this one is a basically one wannabe hunt for Red October. Here we have um, a Russian, the Russian president being kidnapped by one of his ministers, and it's up to a U.S. submarine to save him in order to prevent World War III. Somehow. I didn't quite understand. All I got from the trailer was that it want, it's tr- it thinks it's Hunt for Red October or like KS-30, K, you, what, what were the other submarine movies? Uh, K-19, The Widowmaker, I think, was one. And then there's like um, U-571, I think, was another one of those submarine movies. Yeah, U-571. It thinks it's one of these submarine thriller movies, but it looks more along the lines of freaking... Olympus has fallen or Geostorm mainly because it's Gerard Butler in the lead and this is another movie that features Common so Common is going to be in a movie about big feet he's going to be in an African dra- you know an African American centric drama based on the no- based on a, no- a highly acclaimed novel and he's going to be in a movie about submarines Common is all over the place this fall but uh yeah Gerard Butler does not make good movies anymore I don't think he ever. Get, I don't, I'm doubting he ever made good movies, but yeah, he. I have. I have. I, this feels like a direct-to-video movie that somehow got released in theaters. So, hope, hopefully, it'll be cheap enough to make back its its you know it make back its money because I doubt people are going to go see this. this. Is Hunter Killer? By the way, if I forgot to mention the title, so this is Olympus has fallen underwater. It's trying to trying to be Hunt for Red October U five seventy one. 
any of these sorts of submarine thrillers, and I don't. It, it seems too stupid for its own good. And then that we end up October on another pure flicks movie. This one doesn't even have its own Wikipedia page. Fun fact, and that is Indivisible, which is a biopic about Army Chaplain Darren Turner. So we got two biopics and a book adaptation from Pure Flix this fall. And your accuracy is already into question, Pure Flix, because you clearly don't know how to tell the truth when all you can do is focus on your Jesus BS. Biggest name in this movie is Tia Maori from Sister Sister. And she's in a supporting role. This is, I, I, I'm calling this one. This is all simply red meat for conservative evangelicals. This is not a real movie. This is just, this is just something to throw to conservative evangelicals to be like, yeah, yeah, this, this is me. This is what I think. Yes, this. And it's not going to be for anybody else. In which case, why release it in theaters at all? Why not just, just email? Why just, why not just make a mailing list and send them the DVD? Because it's clear, because it's clearly not about telling a decent story. It's about it's about proselytizing from the movie screen. And I am not a fan of that. Anyway, we start November with Bohemian Rhapsody, the Queen biopic, starring Rami Malek as the man himself, Freddie Mercury. And and this has gone through some troubles. It started off as a Soster Baron Cohen project, and he, and he dropped out after uh, butting heads with the um, with with the former me- with the other members of Queen who wanted more prominence, and Byron Cohen wanted to focus more on uh, Freddie, and then Brian Singer, the director that was attached, was decided not to decided to stop showing up after Thanksgiving break last year, and so despite the fact that he gave up after butting heads with the other producers on the project, and apparently even butting heads with Rami Malek, Dexter Fletcher took over. And so no more. And yet, even after taking over, Brian Singer still gets his name attached to the movie. So sucks for Dex. Sorry, man. That's what the director guild, director's guild decided to go with. Not who ended directing the movie, but who started. Same thing happened with Justice League and um, uh, Zack Snyder and Joss Whedon. Joss Whedon had to take over from Snyder, but Snyder's name ended up on the cut. At any rate, uh, yeah, this is going to be talking about the rise, of, you know, the, the rise and fall of Freddie Mercury. Not fall so much, I mean, because they're apparently omitting his battle with AIDS and downplaying his sexual identity, and you know, the fact that he was bisexual. So he was there was a lot of homosexual, you know, he was a very prominent homosexual figure. So yeah, basically, they're making a gay icon movie, but for the straights. Which yeah, that's beautiful. Dynamite choice there, guys. So yeah, it, it should be good, but it's definitely gonna, probably going to be. It's, it's, I'm assuming it's going to be problematic. Ultimately, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, we also get that that at the beginning of November, the Nutcracker and the Four Realms. You may not have heard about this, but this is Disney's take on the E.T.A. Hoffman story, featuring the music of uh, uh, Peter Ilovich Tchaikovsky, if I'm not mistaken. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but yeah, Disney never tackled fan, um, never tackled Nutcracker outside of Fantasia. And even then, that was just animating segments of the ballet music. Here, they're actually tr- making a loose adaptation of the E.T.A. Hoffman story that inspired the ballet. And then incorporating Tchaikovsky's music into the, into the uh, plot. 
and not into the plot, into the film, into the score. Basically, this is Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland, but with the Nutcracker. I will say this, it's downplayed now, but I swear I remember seeing that the Nutcracker was a black actor, and that would mean that we have a prominent interracial couple in this movie. If they cut all of that out, then screw you, movie. Uh, Honestly, more than anything else, this feels like a holdover until they can get Mulan ready for theaters, because... This is essentially where Milan was supposed to air uh, on the uh, 20th anniversary. But, yeah, that's going to be delayed for another year. And this feels like, well, we'll just put out this Nutcracker thing instead. This does not feel all that inspired, sadly. Um, and then, of course, we have uh, Suspiria opening wide that, that weekend, which is the remake of the Dario Argento classic. We've got Dakota Johnson again. Uh, we've also got Tilda Swinton and Chloe Grace Moretz. And the premise, uh, if you don't know, is a dance academy starts seeing some disappearances that ties into its, its uh, notorious past. And so you've got the director of Call Me By Your Name, who has been working, who has also done a lot of work with Tilda Swinton. This is his third collaboration with her. And I think enough time has passed that the remake was, that you could do a remake of Suspiria. And it's an R-rated remake, so it, it's got no problems there. You know, you don't want to do a PG-13 remake of an R movie. That's all I'm saying. But... Uh, I'm not sure how it'll, how it'll compare. I'm going to watch them both back-to-back and see which, which version I prefer. Uh, but, we'll, yeah, we'll see, uh, how, we'll see how, how it handles. I, I think I hear good things, but I'm not sure. not hearing all that much buzz, but I think people were excited based on the trailer. And then the last of that weekend is Nobody's Fool, which is by Tyler Perry, I was shocked to find out, because I actually liked the trailer. Uh, the movie deals with uh, stars Tiffany Haddish, even though its d- main character is Tika Sumpter. And it also features Whoopi Goldberg. Tika Sumpter and Tiffany Haddish play sisters. Whoopi Goldberg is their mom. Goldberg is just solid in this movie. She had some good laughs. She got some good laughs out of me. Um, but yeah, Sumpter's character gets catfished by somebody uh, online. And so Haddish decides to take the lead on finding out who it is that's trying to catfish her sister. And then... Yeah, it's it seems to be a decent Tyler Perry movie for once. But it could just be a good trailer. The the movie could go off the rails like his last movies did. He did a movie this year called Acrimony, which went completely off the rails and was was guano levels of insane, which is bat poop. It's my piece. It's my uh, clean way of saying that word. <laughs> um, so yeah, guano levels of insane, off the rails crazy. And we'll see if this movie does the same or if it might actually be a decent comedy. We'll see. Next week, uh, we see a Wednesday release with The Front Runner, the latest from Jason Reitman. Uh, this, is based, this is a biopic based on the Democratic Front Runner in the 1988 election, Gary Hart, and his fall from grace after it's revealed that he was having an extramarital affair. It stars Hugh Jackman as Gary Hart, Vera Farmiga as his wife, J.K. Simmons as his campaign manager, and then Alfred Molina in a prominent role. So I like Reitman when he's tackling politics. He did a great job with Thank You for Smoking. And this could also serve as as a valid commentary on the whole idea of tabloid politics, which is just reporting on the salacious bits and not the constructive bits. Because from what I could tell, Hart wasn't a bad politician himself. It's just the media cared more about the fact that he slept around than than actually doing his job, which seems to be a very prominent feature in political commentary. And this seemed to be like the, the real height of, you know, the real 
the real jumping point for this level of uh, political coverage. And if it co- if it kind of tackles that and how that's kind that's kind of ruining the discourse, then I then I be then I'm definitely interested in seeing this. Well, I'm I trust Reitman. We'll see how it turns out. That weekend, though, on the on the ninth, we see Illuminations, the Grinch. Yep, they're trying to tackle Doctor Seuss now. Because the last people did such a great... Hell, Illumination took over from whoever was before it with uh, the Lorax. And they they don't get Dr. Seuss. They don't know how to adapt Seuss to feature length. They pat it out and completely miss the point of his stories. And so already you can kind of see the addition of superfluous side characters and this weird modernization of Whoville to add like a modern day level grocery store. It's such a weird, weird version of the, of the move of the, of the, of the prime of the book. And it kind of, it feels like it's going to miss the entire point that the book was making, which was, you can't take away that Christmas joy doesn't come from things. It comes from the company you keep and the Grinch finally learning that. I doubt it's going to I doubt it's going to even understand that that theme going into this. So yeah, at least we're going to find something worse than the uh, Ron Howard version. So that's fun. Uh anyway, that same weekend we get a soft reboot slash sequel to uh The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. No David Fincher uh this time around and we've dropped both Rooney Ma- Ro- Rumi Ma- yeah, Rooney Mara and Daniel Craig. To bring on Claire Foy, uh, who is all you know, who's getting a real come up this this uh, this fall because she's also in First Man, and so here she's playing Elizabeth Salander, and uh, you also got Kit Lakeith Stanfield in this movie, so that's you know he's gonna so that's gonna be good. I don't know this one, but I do know it's not written by uh, uh, the original writer of the Millennium trilogy. This was an addition added on to the to keep the franchise going, but the trailer looks good. We'll see how it um, plays out. Uh, I, I kind of feel bad for Rooney Mara because I feel like she could have easily continued the franchise, but they decided to recast her for whatever reason. We'll see how it turns out, though. And then la- last of that weekend is Overlord from J.J. Abrams. And this is the first film for Julius Avery, who I didn't seem to recognize. I don't know if he's... Well, I couldn't tell what all he's done. Uh, it's all mostly unknowns. I didn't recognize a single name in the cast. And then it's dealing with a sort of pa- uh, para-history. Paranormal history, because you've got World War II, a, a team of paratroopers uh, end up behind enemy lines in Nazi Germany uh, before D-Day, and they find the results of some secret Nazi experimentation. It's not saying specifically zombies, but expect a lot of Wolfenstein correlations with this movie. So it looks like a hell of a lot of fun. So if it's that kind of exploitation level of crazy, it'll be great. So here's to hoping. Uh, we we continue into November with Fantastic Beasts: The Crimes of Grindelwald uh, on, on November the sixteenth. This is basically another entry in the Harry Potter franchise. While Fantastic Beasts tried to do some interesting things by having Scamander be a a sort of naturalist and a collector of fantastic animals, fantastic beasts, if you will. This is basically doing the exact same stuff every Harry Potter movie tried to do, only without any of the build up to the characters. And it completely undoes the events of the last movie, too, which is great. And we've also got Jude Law as a Dumbledore who has no reference to the fact that he was declared gay. 
declared gay. He was never written as gay. He was declared gay after the fact. Thanks, Rowling. You're just a real, you're a real ally, you are. Not to mention the fact that she's no has no problem signing up to an abuser like Johnny Depp, who is still in this movie. In fact, he's given a more prominent role for some reason. And all I've got to say is, The Wizarding World encompasses so many things. You could cover America, you could cover Africa, Asia, Australia, South America, Canada. You know, just so many aspects of the world that you could tackle. And you're focusing on just remaking Harry Potter. But with characters we don't know or care about. Yeah, brilliant idea. I, I still say you sh- they should have gone with a David Attenborough-style mockumentary with uh, Newt Scamander as David Attenborough collecting, uh, mi- collecting these mythical beats. Going, and then he would, it, would be a, it would be like Indiana Jones. He's going from country to country, to, you know, continent to continent, collecting these beasts and studying them to make his book manuscript, his book. Why do we need more generic Harry Potter? Everything the Harry Potter stuff. Like, we have the Harry Potter story. You told it fine. We don't need another entry in that style. We can do more. Damn it. I want more. But who cares? No big deal. I want more. I would like a Harry Potter movie that did not copy the Harry Potter format for once. Do new things with the franchise. Damn it. Not every Marvel movie is the exact same. It follows a similar formula, but it does not ex- copy it every copy paste for everything. Ugh. Anyway, that same weekend, we also get Widows, which is the latest from director Steve McQueen, who last I remember was, um, I believe he, he did, I think he did a documentary after uh, 12 Years a Slave. Uh, but he was that was his last directorial movie. Uh, he did Shame before that and Hunger. Um, he's apparently directing a Tupac biopic. Not biopic, documentary. Um, he directed a Kanye West video. Yeah, his last movie was 12 Years a Slave. Um, and he is go- this is his follow-up, which is an adaptation from a British TV series called Widows. Of the, you know, ITV series of the same name and it features Viola Davis, Michelle Rodriguez Elizabeth Debicki and Cynthia Erivo wait Cynthia Erivo as in like the girl from uh, Bad Times at the El Royale? Cynthia Erivo? Wait a second hold on a damn second I just realized this I was copying down the cash list from the Wikipedia page I did not recognize that name both times Ooh, Carrie Coon. Yeah, more, more of her and stuff. Like like that. Uh, why is she not showing up high on the cast list? What the hell? Elizabeth Debicki, Michelle Rodriguez, Viola Davis. There she is, Cynthia Erivo. Uh, yeah, same, same, same actress from Bad Times at the El Royale. So sweet, awesome. Uh, good, good for her. We're going to see how she does in two months in a row. We're going to see how she does as an actress. Um, but yeah, basically the premise deals with, um, the wives of four robbers whose a heist goes south and they end up dead. So they're all widowed 
and they decide collectively to finish the job that their husband started. And it's a great trailer. I am hyped for this. I cannot wait to see how it turns out. Solid premise. Great director behind it. Can't wait to see how it turns out. And then apparently there's a movie called Instant Family coming out that weekend. Starring Mark Wahlberg, the director of Daddy's Home 1 and 2. And it deals with Mark Wahlberg and Rose Byrne adopting three kids. And I haven't heard of this movie until now. And there's no marketing two and a half months out. I'm expecting, I'm going to be expecting some delays if I don't start seeing some trailers soon. There isn't even a poster released, so we'll see if that keeps that date. Once again, that's the problem. The further ahead I go in the schedule, the less, the more fluid it is. It's hard to tell what's going to be limited release and what's going to be wide release until the weekend of release, sadly. So this is all mainly what they mark down as the tentpole releases. And this is all subject to change at any moment. Uh, anyway, that rounds out the 16th, and so we head into, uh, Thanksgiving Day weekend with Ralph Breaks the Internet, which is Disney's The Emoji Movie. Hopefully better. So not only are we, uh, while they're focusing on the Disney princesses right now, they're also going to be including the Muppets, Star Wars, Marvel, and Pixar characters, as well as their Disney staple of characters. As you saw, uh, Eeyore in that trailer for a hot second, too. I don't... I don't know if I like this, but it's the same people who made Wreck-It Ralph, which I love, and the same people who made Zootopia, which is great. And I'm pretty sure that was one of my top of the year list. It should have been. It's a great movie. So hopefully it's good. It's in good hands. I I just don't want another emoji movie. That was a bad idea. Uh, That same weekend also sees Creed 2, the follow-up to the uh, 2015 movie that kind of rebooted the uh, Rocky franchise by setting, uh, by focusing on one of Apollo Creed's kids, played by Michael B. Jordan. It was one of it was one of Ryan Coogler's tour de forces. His step up from uh, Fruitvale Station to this to now Black Panther. So he's kind of not handpicked, but he suggested the current director for this movie, and he's also acting as a producer on the film. And this one ties back into Rocky IV by bringing back Ivan Drago. So Dolph Lundgren is going to be a bunch of stuff this fall. And here he's going to reprise his role as Ivan Drago. And this time Adonis, played by Michael B. Jordan, is going to be fighting Ivan's son, who I don't think they've given his name, released his name. But that's the impetus for the trailer is revealing that it's going to be Creed versus Drago part two, the revengening or whatever. So it's a great move. I have no idea how they follow this up. I have, they, they're doing the rematch of the century, son versus son, to, to uh, avenge the father. I have no idea what they do from here, though. So it'll be interesting to see how they follow up Creed 2, because I'm guessing it's probably going to do about as well as the first one. Uh, we also get, that weekend, Robin Hood, which is the deb- debut of TV director Otto something. I should have written all of these down. Otto Bathurst. Uh, and he is going to be retelling Robin Hood in the same vein as Guy Ritchie told um, King Arthur. In that, he's going to make it into an action movie. Starring Taron Egerton and Jamie Foxx. Okay. Did not, want, no, did not want this. Nobody wanted this. Apparently it's produced by Leonardo DiCaprio for some reason. 
I don't expect good things. It's also a PG-13 movie, so PG-13 action is usually pretty bad. We'll see how it turns out. Um, we also get the debut, the solo debut of Peter Farrelly, of the Farrelly Brothers. He's directing his first solo movie without his brother in years. And it's based on the uh, tour for Jamaican pianist Don Shirley and his bodyguard, Tony Lip, as they go through the Deep South. And it stars Marshall Ali and Viggo Mortensen as Don Shirley and Tony Lip. And it seems to be a more serious take from Fairley, who has done more broad comedies before this, like Dumb and Dumber 2. He helped write, he helped create movie 43. He did the Three Stooges movie. He's a, he's a slapstick, farcical, kind of broad strokes comedian, comedic director. And so here he seems to be going for a more nuanced uh, he, he's also directing, not writing, it seems. So it'll be interesting to see how this turns out. Hopefully I get the chance to see it. And then we also have that weekend, Second Act, which feels like something out of like the 90s. I don't know why we're doing this again. I, do, I feel like I've seen this premise before, but it's from the director of Tommy Boy and 51st Dates. And it stars Jennifer Lopez as a cashier who quits her job and fakes her way to becoming a financial consultant. Because apparently Google doesn't work in this universe. So we've got Jennifer Lopez with Leah Remini as her best friend and Vanessa Hudgens as like her protege. And I'm already, I can already predict the beats of this movie. This is a completely predictable kind of sitcom-y story. And nothing about it looks appealing to me. So we'll, we'll see if it manages to overcome those, that predictability to it. In whatever way, but I don't have high hopes. And then we'll end November with If Beale Street Could Talk, which is from the director of Moonlight in his first follow-up. And let me get... So yeah, one week after his uh, his actor... Yeah, Barry Jenkins, one week after his, his Academy Award winning star, Marshall Ali... Make uh, debuts in a movie. Yeah, comes in a, comes out in the movie. He he delivers his follow up, which is if which is an adaptation of a book, a novel by prolific uh, African American writer James Baldwin. And this I'm not familiar with this. It was written in 1971 and deals with uh, a couple in Har a black couple in Harlem as as. Um, the boyfriend is accused of rape and taken into custody. The girlfriend finds out she's pregnant, and she and her family try to um, try to clear him of the crime in order to in order for him to stay out of in order for him to you know keep out of jail and witness his child's birth. We've uh, I didn't recognize the leads in this, uh, but the names I did recognize are Regina King. Dave Franco and uh, Ed Skrine and Diego Luna. And so it's got a great supporting cast behind it. And I trust Barry Jenkins. He's a phenomenal director from what I've seen. And it'll be interesting to see how he adapts James Baldwin. I, more stuff with James Baldwin. I haven't seen uh, that documentary about him, but I hear nothing but good things. And I'm, he's got another, I think he's got another novel getting adapted pretty soon. No, he commented on the novel getting adapted, which is Native Son. So Native Son is getting an adaptation next year, but James Baldwin did a wrote an et, like kind of an essay book on Native Son and critiqued it in his old way. So 
I, good stuff. James, I hear great things about James Baldwin. I'm interested to see his work be adapted for the screen. And then, for this, and then to round this out, we're going to look at December real quick. Uh, Mary Queen of Scots on the seventh. That's for, that's the premier, That's going to be a theater direct, a live theater director making her 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 uh, feature film debut. Uh, this is going to be a biopic of Mary Stewart, Mary Queen of Scots. Stars Saoirse Ronan as Mary and Margot Robbie as Elizabeth I. And it seems to be a really good costume drama. We'll see if this live theater director can handle film. I, I, I have no doubts. Uh, we've also got Anna and the Apocalypse that week, uh, which was a fantastic fest release. It is a British-made Christmas zombie musical. That's all I need to know. Can't wait to... Hopefully I get a chance to see it. December 14th, we've got Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which is from Sony Animation. And it's the first fe- first film to feature the characters of Miles Morales, Spider-Gwen, Spider-Man Noir, and Spider-Ham. Written by Phil Lord and produced by his, him and his buddy, Chris Miller. Uh, and it seems to be an interesting animation style. And it could be a great way for Sony to start incorporating more of these Spider-Man characters outside of the MCU, but in their own unique way. So I'm interested to see how this turns out. That same weekend, we see the, direct, the directorial debut of Peter Jackson collaborator, Christian Rivers. Uh, based on the novel by Philip Reeve, it's Mortal Engines, which is a post-apocalyptic steampunk world where cities, where resources have been depleted to the point where cities are now mobile. And, we, and the leads are tasked with overthrowing the leader of, the, of London, who is played by the only named actor in this movie, Hugo Weaving. Although Stephen Lang makes an appearance who people may know as the, as the general from Avatar, for those who remember Avatar. Anyway, I like Stephen Lang. He was definitely up in the running for. Uh, I remember he was he was he was gunning for uh, Cable initially before Josh Brolin took the role. I would have loved to see him as Cable. Uh, could be a successful steampunk movie, but it's also like a hundred million dollars cost over a hundred million dollars to make. So I doubt it will make that back. Steampunk just never had the audience for it. December nineteenth, we get Mary Poppins Returns. Rob Marshall. Is directing so he's he, we have a musical alum uh, you know a musical alumnus a sequel to the 1964 classic Emily Blunt plays Mary Poppins with music by Lynn Manuel Miranda who plays uh, who kind of takes over the um, uh, D- uh, D- Dick Van Dyke sort of uh, workman character uh, he's a lamp post lamp light, lamp post lighter in this version instead of a chimney sweep and so it'll be interesting 160 million dollars oh no that's the next one. Uh, that deals. It takes place in the near future uh, and a little bit of further ahead when the Banks children have all grown up and Mary Poppins comes to help them after a tragedy to sort of set them straight. So you're walking on eggshells here because you got a, a, a childhood classic that people are going to be dubious of you making a sequel to so long after the fact. But I, I like Gary Marshall. I like Rob Marshall and I like... Lynn, and Lynn Manuel Miranda has proven himself with Disney music, so we'll see how it turns out. Uh, the weekend before Christmas, we've got on the, on the 21st, we've got Aquaman, which is gunning to be DC's Black Panther. In that, people have already noted, there's a lot of shot sequences in the trailer that look like they're ripped straight out of Black Panther and put underwater and then whitewashed. Well, taken from Black Panther, whitewashed, put underwater. So, oof. Uh, I don't know if J- Jason Momoa has never really been able to carry a movie, so I don't know if he'll do it here. Uh, Patrick Wilson is going to be playing Ocean Master, so that'll be interesting. He's usually pretty good. 
Uh, Yahya Abdul Mateen II is going to be playing Black Manta. So they're including Black Manta in this, and that seems to be the best part of the trailer. Um, you've also got another movie featuring Dolph Lundgren. He's going to be playing, I think, the former king of Atlantis. Uh, Willem Dafoe is going to be playing a sort of vizier, sort of um, assistant to the throne sort of character. And then Nicole Kidman is going to be playing uh, Aquaman's mother, it looks like. But this was the one that cost $160 million to make. And it's from it, it's brought and it's brought to us by the writers by writers who have been known for such quality works as The Conjuring Two, Red Riding Hood, Gangster Squad, and this year's Venom. So Aquaman seems to be in good hands. Oh boy, oh boy. Anyway, uh, that same weekend, Alita: Battle Angel is going to be released. This has been in production since 2000. James Cameron has been gunning for this adaptation for. For for all for all better part of two decades, and he finally gets to bring it to the screen with the help of Robert Rodriguez, and it's got a solid cast: Christoph Waltz, Jennifer Connelly, Marsha Lee, Jackie Earl Haley, Ed Scranigan, and this is of course based off the manga by Yukito Kishiro, and is focusing on the first couple of books of the uh, of the storyline and of the of the series. But it cost two hundred million dollars to make, and I. I am doubtful that maybe through international markets it can make some of that up. I don't know if the American markets can carry that budget, though. That same weekend, we've also got Bumblebee. It is the first Transformers movie in years since the introduction of the Bayformers. To not be directed by Michael Bay, it was directed by Travis Knight, who is better known for directing for Leica and one of the founders of Leica and one of the main producers of Leica animations. This is his first live-action movie. In fact, the last movie he directed was Kubo and the Two Strings, one of the best movies I saw in 2016. Uh, here we've got Haley Steinfeld as a young girl who finds Bumblebee as a beat-up old Volkswagen Beetle. We've also got John Cena and Pamela Adlon in the cast out of, out of nowhere. It seems to be about a sort of girl-and-her-robot sort of storyline uh, with Haley Steinfeld bonding with Bumblebee in the 80s. And then you've also featuring, it's also featuring, it doesn't seem to be Starscream, but it looked like Blitz, Blitzwing is going to be the, the jet um, Decepticon there. But you also got Barricade is going to show up, Dropkick, Shatter, and Optimus Prime, of course. Can't have a Transformers movie without Optimus. Uh, so it looks like a nice change of pace for the series. And hopefully we, if they can do more stuff along this line and not so much like the Bayformers, they can kind of turn this franchise around. And, of course, you've also got Mark, Welcome to Marwen, which is the latest from Robert Zemeckis. It's based on uh, the art installation Marwen Cole, which is the name of the miniature town in Kingston, New York, created by an artist uh, after five men beat him nearly to death, and he had to overcome his, uh, you know, over, uh, he had to overcome coming out of a coma and kind of, you know, deal with the pain that they put him through. And so he did that by creating a fictionalized sort of World War II era Belgian town that he called Marwin Call. And here it's shortened to Marwin. And so this one features Steve Carell as the artist in question, Leslie Mann as sort of the romantic lead, it looks like. Merritt, we Merritt Weaver is going to be one of the... Merritt Weaver is kind of the... Um, that one woman you see helping him out a lot in the trailer, um, Roberta. Uh, Janelle Monet is his uh, physical... Uh, Rehabilitator instructor. She's shown as an amputee. Uh, Eliza, Eliza Gonzalez 
Gwendolyn Christie is in here. Uh, Diane Kruger is also going to be in here, but apparently only as a voice kept role, it looks like. It's not going to... I hesitate to call this a biopic because it's very fanciful and it focuses a lot on these animated recreations. So it's not a true biopic, but it definitely looks really good and I can't wait to see how it turns out. And I hope it's in... I hope it's to the um, artist's liking and that it's not, you know, desecrating him by making some sort of whimsical fantasy out of his pain. We'll see. Uh, last one that 21st weekend is apparently a comedic take on Sherlock Holmes with Will Ferrell as Sherlock Holmes and John C. Riley as Watson called Holmes and Watson. No idea if that's even going to come out. No word on, no poster revealed, no marketing revealed. So we'll see if it even gets released in December. And then lastly, on Christmas Day, they're releasing On the Basis of Sex, which is the Ruth Bader Ginsburg biopic starring Felicity Huffman, I believe. Huffman? Felicity... Felicity something. Felicity Jones. That's... No, it is Felicity Jones. Yeah, Felicity Jones. I was right. I don't know why. Uh, Anyway, yeah. From Theory of Everything and Rogue One and Inferno, here she plays the titular Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Not titular, but she here she plays Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Army Hammer is going to be playing her husband, Marty. Kathy Bates is going to be in here as well as Sam Waterston. And it's going to be centering on her early career arguing before the Supreme Court um, on the basis of sex. And she's going to be arguing for various um, gender equality cases, some of which deal with uh, men discriminated against uh, in terms of like female roles and then some and you know namely women being discriminated against because they wanted you know more prominent male centric roles i will say though i'm i don't know if i know there was already the critically acclaimed um documentary that came out earlier this year rbg but i also know that she's started to become a bit notorious or notorious rbg as sort of the problems and endemic within white fe- white feminism, in that in that she has kind of ultimately showed that she cares about gender issues at the expense of race issues, and specifically in the in her comments towards the Colin Ka- Colin Kaepernick uh, protests, she has she she was very very you know she kind of. She definitely showed that she is not sympathetic to Ka- Kaepernick's cause, despite the fact that they, you'd think that they would be on the same side. And so Ginsburg has kind of become more of a notorious figure, not very problematic, if you will. And I don't know if the, you know, having a biopic about a woman whose who's, who's ba- who's only real benefit has been towards white feminism rather than towards... Um, that's the terminology. Uh, my brain's kind of crapping out because it's getting late. Uh, third wave, not third, not just third wave, but like, you know, feminism that also incorporates things like gender identity and, you know, race issues. There's a term for it. I'm forgetting it. But point is, she is old school feminist. And I don't know in this day and age that, I mean, I, I'm sure the movie will be fine. I don't know if we want to lionize her, so to speak. I know there's definitely been articles written that we shouldn't be putting her on some sort of pedestal as the sort of un, you know, un, you know, unsaleable um, figurehead that should not be questioned when she's, you know, she's got issues. She's she's got her own issues that people have to call into question as well. You know, 
So we'll see. I'm sure the movie will be fine. Uh, no idea about the biopic, but uh, not a, no idea about the documentary. I know that also received criticism because you know, you know, black, you know, you know, because there was you know there are black critics of the movie who called out, called her out specifically, and called the movie out for not not showcasing how she is kind of not been you know kind of kind of hindered uh, black you know, the the continued struggle for. Uh, you know, rights rights within the black community. So we'll see. I I I I'm not qualified to speak on it, especially uh, especially as it's almost midnight when I'm recording this. So yeah, it's it's I'm I'm just gonna leave it at that. So that's what's coming up for the rest of 2018, and this has gone on long enough. So I'll cut it short. Um, Patreon, I covered Defiance, but. When I po- when I posted about it, a friend of mine uh, was concerned that I may have been handling it too te- t- without a lot of tact, and so that may or may not still be there. Uh, I'm still trying to stay steady on the Patreon stuff, so no Patreon corner for this week. Um, but we still got to do that box office report. And now the popcorn junkie checks in with this week's box office report. By going out a bit later, it kind of helps because this gives us a better estimate for the four-day weekend, given that it is Labor Day. So, uh, premiering this weekend, we had Kin, and that couldn't even break the top ten. Um, and then, but uh, meanwhile, that only brought in three million dollars, and I, I think the movie cost ten million to make. It couldn't do better than The Incredibles too, and it was shown about as many theaters. So. It kind of it kind of stinks, but I can't exactly blame people for not seeing it. Uh, Mild twenty two dropped out of the top top ten, dropped down to number ten from number five. Uh, black and then Happy Time Murders dropped from number three to number eight. So kind of sucks. Kind of sucks for them. Uh, Mild twenty two has still not broken its budget domestically or worldwide. It still has yet to break its budget, which which is good because screw that movie. Good sequel baiting so hard when it didn't deserve it. Anyway, staying in at number seven is Alpha, bringing in four uh, four and a half million dollars this weekend, bringing its domestic gross up to twenty eight million and its foreign gross up to forty seven million. Still technically a bomb, although if it can make four million dollars the next through the ne- over the next couple of weeks, it won't be a full fledged bomb it will at least made back its budget which is good because the movie didn't deserve to bomb like that it was it's a it's a solid movie it more and i hopefully more people will get a chance to see it and we'll take the chance to see it because i think it's still pretty good and uh staying at number six as well is christopher robin bringing in 5.1 million dollars bringing its domestic gross up to 87 million and its worldwide gross up to 133 million which means I think it made back its budget, but not much else. So this is one of the lower performing of the Disney live action uh, sequel remakes. And I think it's because Beauty and the Beast and Cinderella had more name recognition behind them. Whereas not a lot of people were interested in seeing live action Winnie the Pooh. Premiering at number five is Operation Finale, which brought in $6 million this weekend. And uh, overall brought up $9 million dollars. Domestically, no word on a no domestic, no foreign, uh, no foreign uh, theater information. But 
It cost $24 million to make, so sadly this does not seem to be... This may make it back its budget in the long run, but it premiered really low for wanting to make back its budget. So hopefully it can do better in the long run, but not, not people weren't really interested in seeing this. Jumping up from 22 to number 4 and seeing a surge with 1,000 more theaters this weekend was Searching. Which brought in $6 million this weekend, bringing its total gross up to $8 million domestically. And its foreign gross up to $14.6 million. And Box Office Mojo is not listing its budget, so let me check Wikipedia. Not listed there either. So let's take a look. It probably won't. It probably cost a couple million more than Unfriended. So let's take a look. At how much that cost? That cost a million dollars without any named actors. Add in cats like Deborah Messing and John Cho. It probably, I'm, I'm assuming Surging probably cost on the upwards of at most $5 million. And so it's well, it's all, it should have already doubled back its finances. So good on Surging. It's, it's, it's already a success after two weeks. I'm glad people are going to see this. It's a great movie. So, good on searching. Jumping up from 22 to 4. <laughs> That's quite the leap. Uh, it, it did better in its second week than Operation Finale did in its first. That's, that, yeah, I guess it goes to show what people are more interested in seeing at this point. Dropping, uh, jump, going up, actually, from number 4 to number 3 is... Mission Impossible Fallout, which brought in $7 million this weekend and brought its domestic total up to $206 million and its global total up to $649 million. We're going to get another Mission Impossible movie. Whatever Mission Impossible 7 is called, it's coming. Give it a couple of years. Staying steady at number two is The Meg, which brought in $10.5 million and after four weeks has grossed $123 million domestically and $465 million globally. It's almost already made back its budget domestically. Never underestimate the long, you know, a movie's r- long run. If it can get that repeat, you know, it looked bad in the, in the first couple of weeks, but it managed to stay steady, and it stayed in number two, at the number two spot for a couple of weeks now. And staying at number one is Crazy Rich Asians, which brought in $22.1 million this weekend bringing its domestic gross up to 117 million and it's foreign and combined with the foreign gross sadly which is only 20 20 million dollars just about 20 million dollars but that's still 136 million dollars almost 137 which it, which on a budget of 30 million dollars means this is a runaway success it's not as making black panther money but it's doing the same it's doing the same numbers and the fact that it's a it's a smaller budget and making and making and making bank on it, so good on Crazy Rotations. It deserves it. So, so it, so we'll see how it finally does how how it finally handles the more, the the you know the more competition coming out. But if, if for for staying at number one for like what three weeks in a row, that's 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 commendable. I mean, it's an August release. But that's not to take away the fact that it's managed to stay at number one for three weeks on end. Congratulations, Crazy Rich Asians. You earned it. That takes care of the box office report. And now it's time for some trailer talk. 
coming this summer. It's Trailer Talk. Rated R starts Friday. I didn't get into it during the main discussion, but next week we've only got two major releases. The first is a spinoff, the the latest spinoff from The Codring, The Nun, which spun off from a spinoff of The Conjuring, which was the Annabelle sequel, which was the Annabelle prequel. And so we'll see which they spin off from this. Uh, But we've also got Jennifer Garner in sort of a Punisher style revenge action movie uh, called Peppermint. So first up, let's take a look at The Nun. Forgive me, Father. You're the same I've ever thought to commit. Weird. <laughs> Boy, that's like a crucifix. The Abbey has a long history. Not all good. Uh-oh, he's a spooker. Oh no, it's all spooky. Before the conjuring. God, it's here. Before Annabelle. The Defiler. The darkest chapter was born. Whatever you may see or hear, don't stop praying. So are they going to feature the nun from Annabelle Annabelle creation? Because that's the whole reason this exists. Experience at an IMAX, September 7th, rated R. God, that's so stupid. Uh, so, yeah, apparently they're they're super cutting the trailers to last longer. But, yeah, that's, that's going to come out this weekend. So, we'll see. I'm going to take my, uh, my nephew to it. We're, it's going to be bad movie squad for him and I. So, we'll see how it turns out. Also coming this weekend is Peppermint. Which is a much more straightforward trailer. YouTube. Screw you, YouTube. Stupid. Ugh. God, just give me the damn trailer. Anyway. Uh, Peppermint. The female Punisher. Basically. Who's my God, this opening feels like it's going to be... It feels like it's trying to sell me an iPad. Love in her heart. And snow in her eyes. And peppermint in her blood. Happy birthday, kiddo. Yeah, that, that music sounded specifically like, uh, like iPad selling music. I'm very sorry for your loss. We have three suspects in custody, but they're all linked to the Garcia cartel. No witnesses have been willing to step up. These cartels are no joke. They've got everyone in their pockets. You've been through a terrible tragedy. Maybe you didn't see what you think you saw. That's him. Maybe you made a mistake. Number three. Yeah, this is straight up the Punisher. They didn't. Is it possible that your recollection isn't what you thought it was? The evidence is insufficient to hold the defendants over for trial. You think that you're going to have justice? Make them all pay. From the director of Taken. Ooh. Five years ago, Riley North just disappeared. Completely off. Oh, the five years ago, not so not one year ago. Five years doing what? Okay, I, I thought it was a single year, not five. It's five years. That makes more sense. You honestly think Riley North did this? Today's the five-year anniversary of her family's murder. She's back. 
Yeah, this is the latest action movie from Jennifer Garner since Electra. Dirty cops. What do I want? I want justice. It's not a coincidence that makes this area low crime. It is low crime because of her. Hey, somebody's doing something. Find her. I don't care if you have to burn the city down. Watching someone take everything from you. It turned you into somebody else. You know, I'm kind of glad she's in more stuff like she's starting to get in stuff like this, and not that, not that Christ exploitation garbage. She's too good for that stuff. Outman, now gone. How you really think this is gonna go? I will kill every one of you, and then I'll pretty much wing it from there. Yeah, she's solid as action. I can see her doing more action. So yeah, uh, I mean, she started out on Alias. I never saw that, but. I uh, hear good things about the show. So, yeah, uh, we'll see how that turns out this weekend. It could be good. I mean, all I, once again, if you can't be good, be fun. If you can't be fun, be good. That's all, I, that's all you really need to have a successful movie for me. So that about does it for this week, which means it is time for the plugs. And I've gone on for too long, so I'll make this quick. If you're... If you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And if you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out, be sure to whitelist on, a, on your ad blocker and favorite the page so that you can keep up to date on all the new episodes as they get released. Uh, and also check out all of our other fine content. Uh, we're, you should be seeing a uh, Living in the Stacks episode tomorrow. If I can get it edited in time, this took way longer than I was hoping for, but it's but I, but once again, you should be seeing uh, next next tomorrow's episode should be um, the Outsiders by Essie Hinton. So stay tuned for that and check out all of our other fine programming. And if you have, uh, and if you would like to have your program your uh, podcast uh, featured on the network as well, you can send us uh, inquiries at gu- at Networks Podcast at gmail dot com. Uh, yeah, Gumbacat Gumba Cat Networks at gmail dot com. So send out Lake Ruiz there if, if you would like to join us. And, uh, be, and if you're a listener, just check out all of our other fine programming. Um, I would also, you know, and, the, and if you're not uh, using the website, then be sure, then if you're, and if you're using a third-party app, we're available through Spotify, I believe Stitcher, Spreaker, um, iHeartRadio, Apple, Google Play, Wherever you're listening to this, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review and let people know that you like the show and that they should check it out as well. Uh, if you would like, and if you want to share the podcast on social media, our social media home is, pop, is Popcorn Junkie on Facebook.com slash Popcorn Junkie, Twitter at Corn Junkie Pod, Instagram at Popcorn Junkie Podcast. Uh, I'm on Mastodon at Popcorn Junkie, and I'm on Stardust at Popcorn Junkie. If you want to hear my reactions to a new release before, you know, before the podcast airs, you can, you know, you can check me out on Stardust. And I think that's all the social media. And if there's any questions you want to ask me, any kind of feedback you want to give, any kind of uh, additions you want to make, you want to share your thoughts on the movies the, that aired this week, send all of that to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. That about does it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey. And I put a lot of, this is a lot of last minute work to finish out Labor Day. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by the M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nathio, N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nathio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork. <laughs>